1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 20 to 34 But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise... What do people mean by being baptised on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Someone once said that there's only two certainties in life, death and taxes. Uh, and it seems to me as an onlooker um, that, that uh, the wealthier someone is, the more successful they usually are at avoiding taxes, and the wealthier someone is, usually the better they are at cheating death, at least for a little while. And today, millions, actually probably billions of dollars, are being spent on research into various kinds of anti-aging gene therapy and they actually are actually having some success. I was, I was reading just the other day an article which was talking about how they've managed with this gene therapy to restore age-damaged organs in mice. Uh, but eventually, death does catch up with everyone. Or does it? Uh, today we're answering the age-old question. It's a question which concerns every generation. What happens when I die? Uh, some people are more concerned with that question than others. It's a question which some people don't even think about because they're so fixated on this world and for them life and its continuation is just taken as a, as a given, taken as a certainty. Uh, but usually when someone does consider what happens when I die, what they're looking for isn't necessarily the truth, um, but it, they're looking for a perspective on death that they can believe and that will give them peace. Peace that it's all going to be okay when I die. Peace that I'll be able to handle death, or peace that death will take them from their current pain or from their current suffering or the current turmoil in their life. That They're looking for it to be better when they die. Now, 
When it comes to the world religions, there's all sorts of perspectives on death. Uh, something that's become more popular in our culture is because of the um, fixation, I suppose, on more Eastern religions. Um, well, some people have heard of reincarnation. Reincarnation is that belief if you lived well and did good stuff, then you'll come back as a higher life form. Uh, but if you lived poorly and didn't do so, so much good stuff, you'll come back as a lower life form. Um, but it's still, for those Eastern religions, this reincarnation is something that's seen as bad. Being caught in this constant cycle of living to them is... They don't want that. They, they actually want to be rid of bad karma, right? That's the effect of evil action or evil intent. And if they can manage to get rid of this, what they call karma then they might, when they die, be able to escape the cycle of reincarnation and then their spirit will just be absorbed into the one big spirit that they see present in the world. Now, that's what reincarnationists believe. Um, some believe when we die, we just go into a state of unconscious sleep. Some believe that those who have done good stuff in their life will be rewarded by going to some kind of heaven and those who have done bad stuff in their life will go to some kind of hell. And of course, if you ask those people, well, what's good and what's bad, usually the line will be drawn just under where they are. Right? So those people who are like me and better will go to heaven, and those people who are worse than me will go to hell. Um, some believe that the good will be rewarded and the wicked will be annihilated. Uh, that means they'll be destroyed instantly, maybe even painlessly, that they'll just simply cease to exist. Um, years ago, there was a song put out by a band, Blood, Sweat and Tears, and they sing, I can swear there ain't no heaven, but I pray there ain't no hell. And a lot of people live like that today. They, they live as if there's no heaven. I don't, yeah, I don't care what happens, but golly, I hope there's no hell. Then there's what the atheists today, the atheists today believe that once you die, there's nothing. Your consciousness just stops because for them there is no soul, there is no spirit. Man in their eyes is merely an accident of time, chance, random physics and biology and consciousness is just a chemical reaction that's taking part in your brain. And so when somebody dies, the chemical reaction stops and the electrical synapses stop firing and you just cease to be. And most people with their belief, they're just looking for peace. They want to believe that the pain will stop. They want to believe that what comes next is going to be better or that it will be nothing at all. Um, and they just want to know that there's nothing for them to worry about with this whole death pro process. And it's interesting um, watching in our own country at the moment the, the euthanasia debate unfolding. And it seems that those who are wanting to have euthanasia, it's because they're wanting to regain control. It's like, I don't want to be at... I don't want death just to happen to me. I want to have control over when I die and how I die. Um, I guess a lot of us can be like that. We, we, we don't want to give our lives over to God. We want to retain control of our lives. And some people take that to the extent of, I want to control when I die. Um, but what do we believe? 
as disciples of Jesus, what do we believe? Our belief, our faith, isn't something that should be based on wishful thinking. Our belief shouldn't be a quest to find an answer that will give me a feeling of peace. Our belief should be based on truth, um, the truth of God's word. And so, as disciples of Jesus, what do we believe happens when we die? What do we believe about those who are saved? What do we believe about those who are not saved? Well, we believe in the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we believe that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He was the first. Yes, some of you might say to you, but Michael, there was other people in the Bible who were raised back to life before Jesus. Yes, there were. For example, the prophet Elijah raised the widow's son back to life. And then, like him, the prophet Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son back to life. And then after the prophet Elisha was dead and buried, um, somebody else was killed and they threw his corpse. They dug up a hole and not knowing that they dug up Elisha's grave and they threw this corpse in and he came in contact with Elisha's bones and he popped up and came back to life. Not Elisha, the fellow that they'd just thrown in. And then there's the resurrections that Jesus performed. Jesus raised a widow's son and he raised Jairus' daughter. And of course, we can't forget Lazarus. He'd been dead for days. Now, all of these were raised back to life before Jesus was. But it was a different sort of a resurrection. All of these were raised back to a physical life. So it was sort of like they were healed, right? Jesus would heal a lame man and he would walk. In this case, he healed a dead man and he had his physical life back again. But when Jesus was raised back to life, this was a very different kind of resurrection. Jesus' body wasn't a normal body. He would just appear in a room with people. It was his glorified body. It wasn't a physical human body anymore. And he's the first fruits of those who were raised to this new glorified body. And we're going to learn more about this um, in a couple of weeks' time when we study verses 35 to 58. We will receive a new spiritual body. Same, but different. So what's the order? How does it all happen? Well, Jesus Christ has already been raised. Jesus already has his resurrected, glorified body. But we're going to have to wait a little while for ours. We're not going to get them for a bit. Um, Verse 23 tells us that when Jesus returns is when we will be bodily raised. All right. So reading from verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then that's backed up in more, with more detail in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, reading from verse 13. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Right? So he refers to those who have died as, as those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, I'll just pause there for a moment. 
there's nothing more hopeless for me than doing a funeral for someone who is a vowed atheist, somebody who isn't a Christian, someone who's rejected God his whole life, uh, rejected God at his death, right? Um, everybody's looking for hope. What hope do I have to give? None. But as Christians, as believers in Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, as those who follow him, um, we're in a different, very different story. It gives us hope. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Are you encouraged by these words? I, I hope you are. And I hope that you encourage each other with these words. This is what he's saying. This is what our faith is about. Not just that Jesus saves us from our sins, but that Jesus gives us life. So when we're with someone who is, who is grieving because somebody they love is dying, if that person's a Christian, we can, we can give them encouragement. All right. So it's when Jesus returns that our bodies will be raised. But... What happens to us between death and the resurrection of the body? Well, this is where the scriptures are a little bit more... Vague's probably the wrong word. Um, they just don't define it precisely and exactly. But we do catch some little glimpses through the scriptures of what happens between death and our resurrection. So what do we learn from these little glimpses? Well, firstly, at the point of death is when our separation from Christ or our unity with Christ becomes permanent. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, the rich man, he lived lavishly. He feasted sumptuously. And right there at his front gate was poor old Lazarus starving, covered with sores, longing just to get some of the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Anyway, they both died. The rich man ends up in Hades. Now, that's the Greek word for the land of the dead. It's not the Greek word for hell. Uh, the Greek word for hell is Gehenna. Um, but it's pretty obvious that that rich man's place of death was not a pleasant place to be. See, it wasn't only a place of death for him. It was a place of torture and torment. The Greek word is basanos, which means torturous. And the rich man begged Abraham to let Lazarus, who was by Abraham's side, to bring just a few drops of water over to cool his anguish. But Abraham says, we can't. There's a great big chasm there between us and it cannot be crossed. 
right? So at the point of our death, our separation from Christ or our unity with Christ becomes permanent. If when I die, I haven't yet given my heart to Jesus. If when I die, I don't belong to Christ, there are no further chances. Which brings us to our second point. The fact that there are those who belong to Christ and those who don't belong to Christ. And it is only those who belong to Christ who at the point of death are not separated from Jesus and they will be raised to eternal life. We catch a glimpse of this in Luke chapter 23 when one of the criminals is hanging on a cross beside Jesus and he confessed his guilt and he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is talking about death as being away from the body. And he says that he would rather be away from the body and be with the Lord. All right. So even when Paul dies, he'll be away from the body, but he'll be with the Lord just not with his body. In Revelation chapter 20, we catch a little glimpse of the throne room of heaven. And there in the throne room of God are the saints who have been martyred for their faith. Yes, the devil might be able to kill the body, but that doesn't separate God's faithful witnesses from the presence of God. When we die, those who belong to Christ are with Christ, which is why Paul could confidently say, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Only those who belong to Christ will be raised to eternal life. And in the period between death and when Jesus returns, our bodies have fallen asleep. They're actually rotting in the ground. But our soul is in the presence of Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly what that looks like. How could we? We're physical people and we're trying to understand spiritual things. But Jesus described it as paradise. That sounds good enough for me. Is anyone happy with paradise as a description? Yep, excellent. But here's the thing. Not everybody who dies goes to paradise. Those who don't belong to Christ, when they die, they don't go immediately to hell. Uh, But their separation from Christ, which they have been living by their own choice, becomes permanent. So I want to be clear here it's those who have separated them from themselves from christ by their own choice and their choice becomes permanent and so they won't be in paradise until the day of their judgment they're in the land of the dead hades and while they await the day of judgment the scriptures seem to indicate that it'll be a time of torment for them as we already saw with the story of the rich man and lazarus 
And then, at the second coming of Jesus, a couple of things are going to happen. First, the disciples of Jesus who haven't yet died will be snatched up, and all those who belong to Christ, those who have been with him in paradise, and those, so those who are with him in paradise and those who, have been, who are still living get snatched up together, and together we will all be given new glorified bodies. But the second thing that happens when Jesus returns is the judgment of those who don't belong to Christ. And they too will be raised, but they will be raised for judgment. In verse 24, it talks in terms of destroying every rule and every authority and power. It says, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now that is an image of total victory for Jesus and a total defeat over his enemies. Who are the enemies of Jesus? Well, to reject Jesus is to become an enemy of Jesus. Sin is the enemy, you see. And sin is the rejection of God. Sin is trusting in my own righteousness instead of depending on God. Sin is whatever it is that keeps me from bending my knee before Jesus as Lord. Sin is that which sets myself up as, I don't need to worship you. And every worldly rule and power, every authority that is against Christ will be defeated by Christ. And in Revelation chapter 20, we get a very graphic picture of the day of judgment. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they'd done. That's, that's a bit scary, isn't it? Everything I've done is logged in a book up in heaven. I don't want any of you guys to read that book because you'll think that I'm the worst person in the whole wide world. And the dead are judged by what's written in the books according to what they'd done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What's this book of life? There's a whole heap of books there, records of all of our lives, everything we've ever said, everything we've ever done, every thought we've ever had. All of the good stuff, all of the bad stuff. I think there'd be a fair bit more bad stuff in my book than good stuff. But then there's another book, this book of life, which sounds like a pretty important book. Now, this isn't a book that you can go to the local library and check out to have a read. It's not even in the state library. The Lamb's Book of Life, we call it. It's the book with all of the names of those who belong to Jesus. It's a role. 
It's the list of everybody's name who belongs to Jesus. Uh, I remember an old Christian song. It's old for me, mightn't be old for some of you. I think the words go, my feet are on the rock and my name is in the roll. And if anyone rejects Jesus in this life, their name won't be in that book. They'll be judged for their rejection. And on the day of judgment, they'll be thrown into the lake of fire that represents hell. But for those whose names are in that book, we get to delight in what happens next. For then will come the new heaven and the new earth, and we'll begin a new life with God as he intends it to be. Wow. That's all pretty important stuff, hey? And by now you're probably realising it's pretty critical that our names are written in that book. On the day of judgment, our names need to be in that book of life, otherwise we're in deep, deep trouble. And I think the Corinthian church knew that. Paul gave them two examples to help them to remember that the resurrection is coming and that it's important. The first example is a rather rather bizarre practice that some people in that Corinthian church must have been doing. In verse 29 he says, otherwise what do people mean by being baptised on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised on their behalf? What's that about? That's just weird. You ever seen anyone getting baptised for someone that's dead? I hope not. You're in a weird church if, you, if you've seen that. Um, but even though Paul used it as an example, I think it's important for us to realise he's not, a, not agreeing with it. In fact, he distances himself from this practice. Um, now, this verse, is, it's been the cause of countless theories and arguments and interpretations. But what I think it's plainly saying is that there were people there who were taking part in the baptism of the dead by proxy. Essentially, what was happening that was there was those people, there were some people there who had become Christians... But before they had the opportunity to get baptised, they died. And so they're thinking, well, how can we baptise this person? And so someone from somebody, one of their friends or family would stand there in their place and be baptised on their behalf. Sort of like what we award a medal posthumously. Okay, so somebody might do a really brave thing and save somebody's life, but in saving that person's life, they themselves die. And so we want to give them a medal of bravery, but we can't really because they're dead. So we get somebody from their family to stand there and receive the medal on their behalf. Now, this is not normal Christian practice. And it could be open to terrible abuses. And, And what might surprise us is that Paul isn't really speaking strongly against it, but we have to realize he's not talking about that practice. He's rather using that silly practice as an example of how they should know better, right? Why would you be even doing this silly practice if you didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead? You believe in the resurrection of the dead, that's why you're doing it, right? So, and he actually says, it is those people who do it. He he doesn't talk about us. So he distances himself from the practice. And he asks the question, but even if these people are doing this, then surely they must even believe in the resurrection of the dead. Otherwise, it'd be pointless. And then he draws it home to himself and his mates. He starts speaking about us. 
if there were no resurrection of the dead, why would we risk life and limb for the sake of the gospel? We, you and I, we risk very little to be disciples of Jesus. You know, we might have somebody say some bad things about us or, or taunt us or tease us. And we go, oh, I'm being persecuted for my faith. We have no idea. We have no idea. We risk very little to be Christians. We have to remember in those days were days when Christians were being fed to the lions. And by the way, there was this Christian running from a lion. He says, oh, Lord, please make this lion a Christian. And the lion stops dead in his tracks, clasps his paws. He says, Lord, for what I'm about to receive, I'm truly thankful. Seriously, why would people risk their lives for the gospel? The Open Doors website carries the stories of Christians who are being persecuted all over the world. In June, so it's only a few weeks ago, there was this story. Most of the victims were in their homes sleeping when the attacks began when Muslim Fulani militant herdsmen began their killing spree in Nigeria that lasted four days, Thursday through to Sunday evening and into Monday. In only days, a dozen villages in Nigeria's plateau state were wiped out. The affected communities surrounded the city of Jos, known as the epicentre of Christianity in northern Nigeria's middle belt. As many as 200 Christians had been killed. However, some residents fear the death toll may be even higher, as more bodies are yet to be recovered, while others were burned beyond recognition. On Sunday, 75 of the victims were buried in a mass grave. We're still gathering information about the violence, but the details we have so far reveal the scale and the brutality of the attacks. 120 people were attending the funerals of an elderly member and they were hacked to death as they returned home. In another attack in Ghana Rop village, a pastor, Reverend Musa Choji, was killed, as were his wife and son. In Gidden Akwati, the whole community was burned down. Local sources say that some of those displaced are still hiding in the bush as they haven't yet been able to find their way to a safe haven. A pastor with the evangelical church winning all denomination, who wanted to remain anonymous for security reasons, said that following an attack on Saturday, his entire village was reduced to ashes and more than 100 people lost their lives. This pastor said more than 50 heavily armed Fulani herdsmen surrounded the village of Nagaha in the Gashes district. At around 3.30 in the morning, they burned down all the houses as well as two churches. Only a few people were able to escape. His wife's family was decimated. The assailants killed 14 members of her family, including her mother and sister. Others who had come to visit them were also killed. In total, 27 people lost their lives in the same house. They were all burned to death. Only one person, his wife's younger brother, survived as he managed to escape through the roof. 
That's just one story. Christians are dying every day of the week because they belong to Christ. And because they belong to Christ, the world hate them because the world hate Jesus. Now, why would they do that? If there is no resurrection of the dead, if there is no eternity, why would they risk the life that they have for the sake of the gospel? I'll tell you why. For the same reason you would and the same reason I would should our lives be threatened. Because it's true. The dead will be raised. The faithful disciples of Jesus will live again with Christ. Those who belong to Jesus will be raised to eternal life. And those who don't belong to Jesus will be raised to judgment and the second death, which is the lake of fire. What Paul is forcing this Corinthian church to assess and what he is forcing us to assess today is, do I really believe this? Do I really believe this? Somebody once said, you show me what you do and I'll tell you what you really believe. You see, what we do with our lives demonstrates what we truly believe. The world's perspective is, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's get the best out of life that we can now because when we die, it's all over. They live as if there is no resurrection of the dead. They live as if this physical life is all there is. They live as if there is no judgment of the faithless. And here's the sting. A lot of people who profess to being Christians live exactly the same way. And Paul would say to us this morning, wake up from your drunken stupor. Oh, that's sober up. Have a strong cup of coffee, throw a big thing of icy water over you and start thinking clearly. And don't go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. If we truly know God, we're not going to be living for today. We're going to be living for eternity. And this is forcing me this week to think, how is the way that I'm living my life any different from the fellow I live next to in the street? How is the way that we're living our lives any different to the way our non-Christian neighbours are living theirs? Don't we get caught in the same endless worldly cycle of let's make my life better. Let's make my life better. If we truly know God, we'll live for eternity, not for today. And the tragedy is today many people who claim to be Christian are locked into this same worldly mindset and are not living as true disciples of Jesus. In verse 33 he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That's so true. 
Who do you run with? Who are your mates? Who do you spend your time with? If the people you spend most of your time with aren't Christians, you might have the attitude, well, that doesn't matter. My faith's strong enough. They're not going to affect me. Or Paul would say to you, don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And nowhere would this be more so than when a Christian chooses to date a non-Christian. I've met so many Christians who start dating non-Christians and they convince themselves, my faith is strong and it will stay just as strong. They have been deceived. Who's deceived them? Themselves. Bad company ruins good morals. And in my experience, in most cases, when a Christian starts dating somebody who isn't a Christian, it's not long until they're drinking more, they're swearing more, they're quicker to give in to sexual temptation, that they might still go to church occasionally, but they read their Bibles less, their prayers become more self-centered, they fall away from serving God, and their faith becomes more of a maintenance thing rather than being a living, vibrant passion they start chasing after worldly values instead of God's eternal values do not be deceived bad company ruins good morals we become like those we run with how well I know God will be reflected in whether I'm living with an eternal perspective or a worldly perspective. And Paul says to that church, as he would say to our church, sober up and do what's right. Don't go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. If we're living a life fixated on this life, that's shameful for us. We have a saviour who gave his all for us to give us life and we live for him. I guess something I'm actually going to draw out in when I pray is that living with an eternal perspective isn't something we do so that we can enter eternal life. Living with an eternal perspective is something that should become instinctive for us as Christ transforms us and changes us. Uh, I don't think there's anyone here who would want to say they want to be the same 50 years after they're saved from when they first got saved. My desire is that God will be constantly changing my heart to make me more like him. And this is what living with an eternal perspective is about. God changing our heart so that it actually becomes an instinctive thing for us. So currently it might be instinctive for us to live in the cycle of the world, looking at physical stuff and wanting to accumulate more and, and just getting caught into the same old, same old. Whereas as we live for Jesus... It should be coming instinctively more and more caring about others, caring about the gospel, 
um, caring about people's souls um, and about them physically. So let's pray. Lord, in our heads, we believe the day of the resurrection is coming. Lord, please translate this from head knowledge to heart action. Lord, we know you a little and we want to know you better. In so many ways, we've been living with a worldly perspective as if our short time on this earth is as important as eternity and your glorious new heaven. And yet, Lord, we know that it isn't. Lord, change our hearts. Help us to live with an, with an eternal perspective. Not so that we can in some way earn our right to be in eternity, but fill us with your spirit so that we truly know you and so that the way that we instinctively live in this world will be in accordance with your eternal values. Lord Jesus Christ, you have saved us. You have saved us now already. By faith, we've entered into your eternal plan. And now, Lord, please develop in us the instinct of an eternal perspective. Lord, help us not to be deceived. We confess to you that sometimes our greatest deceit has been self-deceit. We deceive ourselves into feeling that we're strong enough to resist the lure of the world, that we're strong enough to resist the lure of those who I hang out with, and that that doesn't matter. Lord, your word tells us a very different story. You tell us bad company ruins good morals. Lord, fix our resolve to run from bad company. Draw us into fellowship with your children who do live with your eternal perspective and help us to break with those who don't. And Lord, we pray with confidence, your kingdom come. Lord, let us have no fear of the day of judgment, but eagerly looking forward to your glorious new kingdom on earth. So we pray, Lord, your kingdom come. In Jesus' name. Amen.